The planet is heating up. The oceans are becoming filled with plastic. Change starts now. Change starts now. We're on a countdown. To zero waste. Five, four, three, two, one. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. Here's your host, Laura Nash. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast and radio show. On today's episode, we're speaking with Tom Miles. He's the chair of International Biochar Initiative and the executive director of U.S. Biochar Initiative. He's also the president of T.R. Miles Technical Consultants, Inc. in Portland, Oregon. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Oh, happy to be here. So let's learn about biochar. What exactly is it? The biochar is charcoal made from biomass, from wood or grasses that have been uh, heated until they become charcoal. And the bio part of biochar is to distinguish between charcoal that's made from vegetation from biological sources rather than uh, charcoal that's made from coal or from uh, fossil fuels. A lot of people may not realize that a lot of activated carbon is actually made from coal or from petroleum mm-hmm. residuals. So biochar is made from biological sources, and it is charcoal that retains the structure of the original plant that it's made from. So biochar from wood uh, looks very much like a little honeycomb structure of the wood cells, the, the wood that it was made from. Uh, if you make biochar from grasses, it has a little different structure and it has a little different composition. So I would think that when I would burn something that it would it would lose nutrients or it would it would lose viability, but biochar is actually really, really good for soil. So so what do those honeycomb structures and is it fair for me to say burnt out structures when I'm referring well, to that? They're burnt out structures in the sense that when you burn something, when you burn wood for example about 80% of the mass of the wood will convert to a gas before it's burned, and about 20% of it will remain in the form of charcoal. And when you're burning charcoal, charcoal will react in direct contact with air. It will burn in direct contact with air. So that if you keep the air out and all you're doing is heating the wood, then you wind up with the charcoal that's left, and it winds up being a very good almost magnetic, attracts nutrients. So the charcoal itself doesn't necessarily contain minerals and fertilizers unless the minerals and fertilizers started in the plant that it was made from. So that if we take a nutrient-rich material like biosolids from sewage sludge and we carbonize it, then we can wind up with a biochar that is very high in phosphorus, for example, and sulfur and other nutrients. But the ash content is very low in, in most woods and, and grasses. So by making biochar at a relatively low temperature, we can keep the nutrients contained along with the carbon in the char, and then it becomes available. Some of that uh, becomes available to, uh, to plants when we combine it in the soil. Mm-hmm. And so that's what's happening when you add it to regular soil. I'm almost getting a picture painted here <laughs> that perhaps it makes like a home for fungus and, and different things in the soil? Yeah, it does. And when, when you think of it, when you're adding charcoal to the soil, you're actually adding a relatively small percentage. So uh, according to our Natural Resource Conservation Service, if you increase the soil organic matter 
by 1%, you increase the water holding capacity mm-hmm. by 25,000 gallons per acre. So by improving that porosity, you add both air and water, the capacity of the soil to contain more air and water. Those same porous areas are where the microorganisms live that are in contact with the roots. Microorganisms that feed the roots, so if they're a charcoal hat helps to helps the soil maintain that kind of porosity for air and water that's needed for for plant growth. Mm-hmm. And that's so important on the west coast where you are because you don't get a lot of rain in the summer, right? So if we can do anything to increase water retention, then that's good. Yeah, and it's been particularly popular, and uh, we've seen a substantial increase in biochar use in California right. uh, during periods of drought. Mm-hmm. And so rather than going out and drilling more wells and depleting the groundwater, if we can retain more water in the soil, and in that case, it's often combined with compost. Mm-hmm. Biochar is actually either combined with the organic matter and composted together, or it's blended with compost. And that improves the water holding capacity of the compost. And then as the compost breaks down, the biochar doesn't break down. And so you have this constant habitat, if you will, for the microorganisms as well. So there's both the physical and chemical side of benefits of biochar, and then there's the biological side as well. And that's really the biological benefit is enabling the biology in the soil. So I want to talk about the Amazon a little bit because this is how I heard of biochar. And you were mentioning that the carbon doesn't break down. So if the the carbon is providing like a home for really good things in the soil, is that why we have soil that's lasted for thousands and thousands of years in the Amazon because of that structure? Well, the Amazon is kind of the, the poster child for the use of uh, for, for biochar. There are actually about 700 places around the world that have now been identified where man-made soils have become an important part of agriculture and soil fertility. But in the Amazon, the Amazon soils are basically acidic in nature, and they're very high in clay. Mm-hmm. And where you find the so-called terra preta in the Amazon is along the banks of the Amazon. The, the banks are very, very high. They're 40, 50 feet tall. And they, again, the soil is very acidic. And when it rains in the, those acidic soils, it flushes out the nutrients. So the acidity of the soil is important for retaining nutrients. In very acid soils, you lose important nutrients that are important to plant growth. And what happened in the Amazon was they burned grasses, for example, in places where they lived. And this is where Terraprete is found. It's where people lived in a strip about 300 meters wide, the whole length of the Amazon, an area that covered the size, would cover the size of France if you added it all together. But all the way up into Peru, uh, the origins of the Amazon, indigenous communities used char, terra preta, and the terra preta was actually a combination of char and their sewage and their kitchen waste all composted together. Mm. And it's not like they took these materials and mixed them all together into compost, but they did combine them in the fields and the plots where they grew manioc and their other crops, uh, their garden plots and so on. And they were very smart about the use of Different plants with uh, would would provide higher concentrations of different nutrients. But what the biochar did is basically brought up the pH or increased the reduced the acidity, made the soils more alkaline, so that the typical pH in an Amazon soil would be in the order of uh, three or three and a half, which is very acid, and you want to get yeah. up to 
five and a half to six uh, to grow things. Mm -hmm. And by the successive year after year of burning the vegetation in a very smoldering uh, kind of environment, they were able to build up this carbon in the soil, which increased what's called base saturation and, and, and provided a more fertile soil. We've actually seen the same thing here if you were over in the Willamette Valley in Oregon for about 40 years, they used to burn the straw from the grass seed fields after the grass seed harvest. Mm -hmm. And a small amount of that, about 1% or 2% of the carbon in the straw, winds up re remaining in the soil. And that's the same, in the same way the prairie soils in North America were, were created from fires and accumulation of carbon. So it's it's really worldwide. It's not just the Amazon or the Terra Preta, but... Again, the Terra Preta is kind of the, the poster child and, and a location where very acidic soils were remediated so that when the Spanish and Portuguese came along in the, in the 1500s, uh, they found communities that were thriving communities that were growing crops on the same land year after year. Mm -hmm. And it was because of this behavior of the accumulation of the charcoal and the composted charcoal, which uh, provided a good growing media. And it's blasted thousands of years, if I'm correct, because I believe what I've read is that people have, I think, carbon dated it, I would assume. And they can tell that things like fish bones are, I don't know, was it 8,000 years old or something crazy like that? Well, at least uh, 3,500 years old in inhabited areas. And there have been areas that have been dated prior to that. Uh, and it's sort of interesting. At one point, they thought that maybe Part of the magic of the Terra Preta was the pottery that the natives used for cooking their food. And they discovered about 10 years ago that, and so people tried adding biochar to pottery to, to biochar emitted soils to see if it would improve growth, and, and they didn't find anything. Well, it turned out that the pottery, the, the technology they were using to make the pottery made, a, made uh, pots that were very porous. And as they cooked fish in them, and it would accumulate the phosphorus from the fish, and so ah. that would provide a concentrated concentration of phosphorus, which promoted plant growth. Wow! <laughs> so you know, the pottery helps as long as it's saturated with, uh, with <laughs> fish nutrients. Wow, that's very cool because I remember reading that that there were pot shards in it, and isn't it interesting to look at our trash versus their trash? Because their trash was being used, I, I think they would have thrown everything, everything from their industries or their household waste and, and turned it into something viable that's lasted thousands of years. And then my biggest issue and why I have this podcast is because we're, we're taking things like plastic and throwing them into landfills and burying them and they're just sitting there and it's not helping anyone and it's making things worse with, you know, contaminating drinking water and releasing methane into the air and all that stuff. So I just find this absolutely fascinating fascinating that thousands and thousands of years ago, people were doing very good things with their trash, basically. Well, they were using materials that would break down organically. I mean, they mm -hmm. weren't using the synthetic materials that we have that we put in our landfills that, that don't break down. Yeah. So I think they benefited, you know, as you go through an archaeological dig, basically in the Amazons, you're, you're digging into the middens, into the kitchen waste and so on of these people, but they use this as part of their livelihood. They, they grew... They grew crops and things where they tossed their trash, and it all worked. Yeah. A very important part of our life where I live is our, our horse's manure, because that's what we use 
for our garden and and our horses are very very old <laughs> one of them starting 33 and he's just totally healthy <laughs> we're all just like this is good <laughs> but uh, we're wondering what we're going to do when he when he goes because he's just been this wonderful provider of of nutrients for us uh, but but before I move on from the Amazon, do you know how it was discovered? Like, were people just testing for things? And is it carbon dating that they were using to to date the things in the soil? Well, actually, one of the early soil scientists, a German soil scientist, uh, Wim Sumbrick, was actually one of the first soil scientists to kind of discover terra preta. And he, he was just studying the soils in the Amazon. And he came up with the fact that there were high concentrations of charcoal in the soil. So he's credited with uh, kind of the early discovery and popularity, if you will, of the whole concept of terra preta and, and anthropogenic soils. Mm-hmm. Was that like decades ago or was that? Um... 100, about 100 years ago. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, okay. I thought this was more of a new discovery. And you know what you said about the prairie grass. So there's this excellent, uh, I think it's Ken Burns that uh, narrates the documentary. Yeah. Oh, what is it called? The It's not the West... It's the Dust Bowl. It's called the Dust Bowl. Have you seen that one? <laughs> yes. Now the documentary is is excellent. And in the in the prairies, for example, people who've tried to use biochar in areas like southern Saskatchewan yeah. uh, have found that the the soil actually has such very high organic matter that the biochar doesn't help very much. So it helps a lot in soils that have less organic matter. And and in most cases. You know, our soil of organic matter is uh, where we use conventional agriculture has dropped substantially. So a grower, a farmer in Missouri, for example, has used biochar to bring his organic matter in the soil from as low as 0.7% up to 3 to 5%, which is where it is very likely that it was when it was a prairie. Wow. And then he sees substantial increase in his growth and his, his output of his crops. Yeah, he's using a particular technique of concentrating the biochar in in rows using what's called strip cultivation. And he's injecting uh, in these furrows that are about six inches wide on 30-inch centers. They cover about 20% of the field in area, but he's concentrating. Uh, he's doing a couple of things. He's using biochar in combination with other organic matter to actually stimulate the biology more in the tradition of regenerative agriculture, letting letting plants capture CO2 in the atmosphere and fix it in the soil in the form of root growth. So he's using biochar as a helper to enable that process. Uh, so he's not just simply putting carbon in the soil and then uh, expecting the biochar to bring that carbon up from 0.7% to 3 to 5%. He's making it possible for the plants to develop their own root growth. And in doing that, he's brought uh, he's brought worms back to his soil. And they, they didn't exist in his soil. And he's brought worms back and he's improved their productivity. He's doubled the yield. He's sold his future uh, corn. He's, he's growing corn for export. And he's sold out his future corn crops and he's withstood drought situations, all with a very careful judicious use of biochar using today's technologies. Is he tilling as well? He's tilling, but it's it's a limited tilling. It's called mm-hmm. strip tillage. 
Yeah, yeah, I've never heard of that before. Because we till our gardens, and everybody's like, "Ooh, that's bad." But we we have excellent, <laughs> like, large gardens, and and with the manure and stuff, it works. And we've never ever had to spray for anything. But we also have like borders of native plants around, so I think that helps with pest control as well. Yeah, you, you know, you obviously are doing other things to compensate for the loss of of carbon, and also for the plant diversity and and those other things which, you know take us back to more traditional mm-hmm. uh, agriculture. The strip tillage is, this is large-scale GPS-guided tractors. Oh, wow. Cool. Uh, 3,000 acres, you know, uh, good size good size production. But what he's paying attention to, he doesn't use chemical fertilizers and so on. It's all organic. And what he's paying attention to is the biology. And that's where the, the, the magic of biochar really is in helping that soil structure on those depleted soils like in the, I mean, he's right in the middle of that dust bowl area that Ken Burns uh, uh, showed. Yeah. And, and that's, I think, an important point about biochar is that it really is, it's part of the solution, but it's not a solution. And it's one of the challenges that we had in the, say, early days of biochar. Biochar was created, coined in about 2008, uh, there was a meeting in 2006 of soil scientists in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It was a worldwide congress, and a number of soil scientists like Johannes Lehman at Cornell and others decided that biochar could really have an impact on on climate change and on agriculture. So we have uh, now thousands of scientists around the world that are working on biochar. There were about 2,500 peer-reviewed papers just last year on biochar. Uh, there have been about 7,000 published in the last several years. So there's an increasing interest in the scientific community and, and a slowly growing interest in in uh, in production agriculture. Very slow in, in the United States. It's mostly uh, picked up in higher value areas like uh, retail gardens and turf and those kinds of applications, which where you can use a more expensive biochar product. In China, on the other hand, they're converting, last year they converted about 200,000 tons of crop residues, straws, wheat straw and corn straw, corn stover, to biochar, and then they combined it with minerals in a what they call a biochar-based fertilizer. And they're finding very good success in combining the biochar with minerals and fertilizer, making a granulated fertilizer that they sell back to the farmers and they give the farmer an incentive because he's adding carbon to the soil when he's using those fertilizers. So in terms of volume, China has really done this in an industrial fashion. Uh, about 20% of their soils are polluted. They're contaminated with arsenic, lead, and other pollutants that come from industrial water that they use for irrigation. Terrible. And so they, from a policy point of view, they're well out ahead of the world in terms of providing incentives for the use. They're building about 50 biochar-producing fertilizer plants across the northern China, and they expect to be producing 3 million tons of this biochar-based fertilizer within a couple of years. That's a different scale, much different scale than here in North America. Mm-hmm. So we only have in North America about 150 companies that are producing maybe somewhere between 30 and 70,000 tons of biochar per year. So it's slowly growing. It's good. So it makes more sense to, for example, in China, go around with trucks and collect all this biomass from really big giant fields and take it somewhere to burn it. And then that way, I would assume you could capture the gases as well. 
Yeah, what they're trying to do, a driver in, in China, is to offset open field burning. So instead of burning their wheat straw and their corn stover in the field and polluting the air in all of the, the big cities that they have in China, mm-hmm. they, they provided an incentive for the farmer. So they actually pay the farmer to take his straw to the local fertilizer plant, which now has a carbonizer and it converts that straw in a contained fashion into biochar and gas. And also they condense what are called wood vinegars. So they use the the solid and liquid products in making the fertilizer, and they use the gas to generate heat uh, for generating power and and for heating the process. So they they basically they're providing the farmer an incentive to not burn his straw, and at the same time they're producing a product for him that helps make his his farming more uh, more productive and more resilient to. To climate change. So, for example, they found that these biochar-based fertilizers will actually help the root growth in crops. So even a, a, a large industrial crop like soybeans, for example, they found that these fertilizers help a soybean plant grow deeper roots to reach down and access water so the plants will survive in, mm-hmm. in uh, drought-stressed years. Mm-hmm. So uh, we haven't gotten that far yet in this country. Before before you could capture the gases to use energy, were people in the Amazon covering the burning? I think I read somewhere that they would cover it with a bunch of stuff. Uh, would that keep that carbon in, or would it still be releasing into the air? Well, there there are a lot of theories about how terra preta and, and biochar was actually made in the Amazons. Mm-hmm. I've done a lot of open field burning, and we've developed and designed and developed a lot of equipment for uh, burning crop residues in the field in a clean fashion. And I think, frankly, that they were simply burning the grasses, burning the excess residues in wet conditions, which created what was what's called smoldering combustion. And so you wind up tending to make more char. Mm-hmm. You burn off a lot of the char, but at the same time, you tend to leave more char in the ground. And I think that was probably the more likely condition. They didn't live very long. They only lived until they were 30 or 40 years old. And probably some of that was uh, living in these highly polluted burning conditions. I mean, if you look at some of the uh, pictures of even the the later generations of survivors in the Amazons who are very different than the ones that lived there for thousands of years, but the Kayapo and other Indians that are there. I mean, we have scientists, Christoph Steiner from Germany lived for several years, seven or eight years. There's a video, YouTube video, something about the gold in the Amazon. And he actually lived with the Kayapo Indians and planted, did his experimentation and so on living with them. That's not a very pleasant environment to live in when you're burning these grasses in pretty damp conditions. Mm-hmm. And that's probably what promoted the uh, of the char. Now, it took a lot of biomass to make the char that's there, So, which is amazing when you see these horizons of soil that are 40 feet thick. Uh, yeah. It took a lot of, it took a lot of uh, burning biomass if you were only getting 1% to 2% in the form of char. Now, if you contain the carbonization process, if you contain the material while you're heating it, then you can get up to 30% yield of char. But if you're just open burning it, you'll get 1% to 2% char. And a lot more pollution. 
Yep, a lot more pollution. Open burning has been banned in most uh, in most areas. We banned it here in Oregon about years ago, mm-hmm. but it was used for forty years, and and it the, it left carbon in the soil that you can still find today in our in our soils. So that in the farm where my great uncle farmed uh, back in the nineteen thirties, and they were using burning as a practice, we can still find charcoal from forty years of burning on that field before it was banned. Mm-hmm. And it's still helping. Still help. Still helping, still helping. It's not going anywhere. So could you technically just have a campfire and then take those ashes and mix it into the soil and it should help? Uh, you could, and it helps in two ways. One is if you burned out a lot of the campfire, the wood, so you're left with the ash, then the help is in the form of the potash, largely potassium, that's left there in the ash. And so the ash is mostly mineral with a little bit of carbon in it. So you get, if you have about 60% carbon in the mix of carbon and mineral in the ash, then you get the effect of what you might call a, a terraprature or a biochar effect. If you have less than that, typically like 20 or 30% char, the carbon still helps, but what dominates is the effect of the ash and the wood ash. And so you have calcium, you have potassium, you have other minerals that are in the ash. And some plants have an affinity for that ash, and some plants uh, do not. Some plants don't grow well. What what it will do is it'll increase the, reduce the acidity, increase the pH of the soil, and some plants don't do well with high pH. And each plant sort of has a band or a range that it grows really well in. So the wood ash is, is highly alkaline. It, it will bring the, the pH up. Mm-hmm. But so for if you're growing onions and that sort of thing, uh, wood ash famously is uh, uh, is very good for that. Cool. The uh, What you want to do with your just having a campfire is rake out the char or quench it prior to uh, it burning out completely. So you have mostly carbon with a little bit of ash, and that makes a really good biochar. So that's that black light kind of chunks, right? Yeah, it's the black light chunks, and if you rinse the jar off the surface of it, uh, actually, there's a technique that we're calling flame cap kilns. Uh, one of the famous ones is called a contiki kiln. You can Google contiki kiln, and you'll find all it is is a conically shaped burner. And what you're doing there is you're burning the, the fuel, the wood in this case, from the top down. And so most of the wood is sitting in a pool of combustible gases, and it's not letting air or much air get to the solid part. It's just simply burning off the gases. Mm-hmm. And that's a simple way of making biochar in your backyard. There's actually a website called backyardbiochar.net. <laughs> I saw that. But, yeah. And that's Kelpie Wilson. She's a mechanical engineer, and she's kind of specialized in how to make biochar, uh, both at the small scale and even the larger scale, using these uh, more open techniques. So in, in the, with those techniques, you're not capturing the heat but you're making biochar in a, in a form that's perfectly usable as a soil amendment. Would you recommend for people at home who have the ability to make biochar, would you recommend that they simply compost for their gardens or use biochar? Like what do you think is better or is it a combination? It's not really either or, it's a combination. 5% yeah. biochar by weight or about 10% by volume. So a scoop of biochar and nine mm-hmm. scoops of compost uh, or organic matter. Uh, if you're composting, then then combine the the biochar with the organic matter and compost it together. 
And that's really the best combination because what happens is the biochar helps the composting process during what's called the thermophilic stage when the the organisms uh, consume the carbon in the organics and they generate carbon dioxide, which creates heat. It'll actually take the temperature of that compost pile up higher than without the biochar. Cool. And it goes up higher and it lasts longer and it makes a more stable char. The other thing that it does, and, and a reason why more biochar will be used in commercial composting, is that it the, the biochar carries air and moisture down into the compost pile. And so it reduces the formation of methane. And so it reduces greenhouse mm. gases. Good. So greenhouse gas emissions from composting go to practically zero when you're adding biochar in the amount of of uh, even 2 to 5%. So a little bit of biochar can go a long way. And then in your composted product, when you use it in the soil, the organics in the compost will continue to break down, whereas the biochar will be stable and stay there as a habitat for microorganisms and, and promoting plant growth and taking the, the nutrients that are in the, in the compost and making it available to the plants. It's really a combination. You use a little bit of biochar and and a lot of organic matter. If you're building soil, you need a source of nutrients to feed the plant, and biochar provides a stable, and, and often those come from organic matter like wood chips or whatever, that or grasses that are breaking down, and biochar provides that stable carbon. So biochar is not really ash. Like ash is like a step further than biochar? Biochar contains ash. Yeah. So most biochar will have about anywhere between 60 and 80% carbon, and then the rest will be ash. Okay. And the ash components typically are, uh, usually there's a high percentage of calcium, but often there are other components like sulfur are, as we say, very volatile. They'll vaporize very easily during the carbonizing process. So you don't get a lot of sulfur staying in the, in the ash, but the biochar will attract sulfur and capture it and hold on to it and make it available to plants. It will capture nitrogen. So one of the benefits of composting, for example, is that as you generate ammonia during the composting process, a compost pile with biochar doesn't smell because the biochar captures the ammonia. That ammonia is made up of nitrogen, and the nitrogen then is available to plants uh, because it's being held onto by the biochar. Instead of releasing into what you can smell? Instead of releasing not only into what you can smell, but it, you know, what you can smell is a greenhouse gas. Mm-hmm. Should I be recommending then to my parents who have a wood stove? I mean, it's not the, the biochar, it's just the ash, but should I be recommending that they put a little bit of ash into their home compost barrel? A little bit of ash in composting is good for composting. And there's a lot of information online as to how you should deal with ash and compost. But it, again, it needs to be kind of blended in. It's really a mm-hmm. source of it's a source of minerals. The compost, the ash from their from their wood stove. If they have a if they have a wood pellet stove, they're going to have very little ash. If they have a, a mm-hmm. log stove, a uh, stickwood type stove, there'll probably be a little bit more ash that will be more of a combination of ash and char. Mm-hmm. But the ash is kind of a different material than the char. But the char contains contains ash. Because you haven't burned out all the carbon. Mm-hmm. So maybe if the fire went out in their furnace, and then you could go in and find those black kind of chunks, then that would be the best, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Just making sure. So you you talked about gasification as well, and um, would it be possible to 
take all of our food waste, basically. This is just me trying to envision a better society. What if we took all our food waste from communities and burnt it and the crop residue that was left and then captured all the gas and could we make fuel out of that or would it have to be probably burnt right away for energy? Um, is this sort of like the future that you see where we're getting rid of all that waste, but then also creating energy or fuel? Well, food, food waste has been a, an interesting kind of a challenge for us in the organic recycling community in the last few years, because initially food waste, in order to divert it from landfills, food, food waste was putting into comp- was put into compost. And it's yeah. a good component for compost. The challenge is that it creates odors, and in large-scale composting, uh, it's created odors that have created uh, intern lawsuits and, and you know, by disturbing people. So a lot of food waste now in Europe and in the United States is going into biological processes, either anaerobic digestion, where you're converting it biologically to a gas, uh, either in a solid or a liquid phase, and then the residue from that, the so-called digestate, which is a solid residue, then is typically composted, or it can be composted and converted to biochar. But converting something thermally, breaking down the carbon thermally to biochar, is kind of the last step that you want to do. What you want to do is to see, especially if it's got nutrients, if it's got nitrogen, food waste has a tremendous amount of, well, what food waste mostly has is water, and you evaporate that water off. But what it also has is a lot of other uh uh, beneficial fertilizing kind of elements. And you want to make use of those in in growing crops. So what we're beginning to see, even at the community scale, is management of the food waste. There's a lot more awareness now that 50% of the food that we eat goes is wasted in some form. It's horrible, yeah. And 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 that's become highly regulated. So in our area, for example, uh, food from restaurants and, and food that would ordinarily go into the landfill is being transported about 100 miles to an anaerobic digester where it's being converted into gas. That gas is being recovered and converted into electricity, and this, the and the residues then are being converted into a digestate, which either goes into compost, which typically then goes back out on, on farmers' fields. Mm-hmm. So that kind of those kinds of economies are being evolved if you look at biocycle magazine for example is a good reference that brings together the people who are contractors who are facing issues of what do we do with all the wood in the in the, in the waste stream now or what do we do with all the food waste wood waste is building up in a big way and and we see opportunities there for biochar because when you have construction recycling debris, clean material that hasn't been painted or treated with uh, or treated wood, that material uh, is simply a large volume, and it's being banned now from landfills, so it can't go into landfills. So one solution would be to convert that material into energy and into uh, uh, into biochar. The challenge we have is that because we subsidize fossil fuels, natural gas and oil, and because of fracking and because the those alternative, those energy sources are such low cost, then our utilities are not willing to pay enough money for electricity to justify converting our solid residues into power. And the consumer doesn't want to pay more for a liquid fuel like methanol that can be made from, uh, from these residues. Mm-hmm. So 
the economic development people in our area are looking at uh, conversion of these residues to hydrogen and then using them in community vehicles, buses, and that kind of thing as a potential outlet. But there definitely is a potential for technically it's feasible to take these solid residues like wood and the residues like food waste. I think one of the best examples of utilization of food waste is a hotel in Japan that for 30 years now, they have been taking their food waste and processing it in the hotel uh, in a way that will remove the odor but put it in a form that's suitable for composting. They send it back out to farms that are actually growing food for the hotel, for the restaurant and the hotel. And then they bring that food back to the hotel. And so it's been an internal circular economy, if you will, uh, that's been going on. Uh, they have some anaerobic digestion, so they convert some of the, the food waste to a gas that they use to generate power and heat to heat the hot water in the hotel. Wow. So it's like kind of a giant furnace of sorts in, in the hotel. Yeah. And and what so, are they doing so they, to get rid of the smell of the compost? Uh, it Well, the smell from the food waste is, is basically it's a steam processing, so they use some of the oh. steam from some of the heat that they've generated from the food waste. Wow. And they both steam and grind the material. So you get all of the kitchen waste. You can see bins full of kitchen waste, and they're dumped into a machine, and they're basically shredded and steamed, and it comes out being a very nice, warm, fibrous-type material, and that goes out to the farm, and that winds up... Uh, it's still got a lot of the nutrients in it, so it winds up being part of the mulch, part of the organic matter that uh, breaks down and, and helps the... The vegetables grow that are used back in the hotel. Wow. Yeah, that, that seems so perfect to me. And because the smell is a really big challenge, like you said, but also I home compost and I've put meat and dairy in mine because the city takes it away and they use high heat windrow systems. So it's okay for meat and dairy. But I've had a maggot problem, which I've mentioned on the show before, and it was really, really horrible to deal with. And I can't imagine being a restaurant owner and having to deal with maggots in your restaurant. It would, it would probably be the death of your business, right? So these challenges are very important to overcome so that we can get that food waste out of landfill and into something productive. So. So we have a we have a project that's local here, uh, is actually near we were mentioning Hood River, in which they're going into production using food waste and using the soldier fly, which mm-hmm. is around your compost pile, and growing the soldier flies and converting those to protein, which then they use as a protein source for animal feed. Mm-hmm. I heard about that. That's... So there are other there are other paths, if you will, other biological paths for handling that. But one of the things that's interesting about uh, adding biochar to to organics for composting is that the odor goes away, and it goes away because it's absorbed the by ammonia. the charcoal. So yeah. think of your think of ammonia and think of your activated carbon filter that's used in a in a fish tank. For oh, example, or, right. Yes. So yes, thank you. What biochar is is simply the the poor man's activated carbon. You're not paying <laughs> millions of dollars for a small amount of uh, of ground up charcoal. Uh, you're making your own. Yeah. I used to use that in my uh, diaper bin for my child. So I had a hole cut out of a plastic bin, and then we put that that charcoal filter from a fish tank in there, and then that way it didn't knock you over when you'd open the bin. <laughs> so it really helped. So biochar is being is very popular in hydroponics, 
And it's also very popular in hydroponics where you're growing fish and then using the, the, uh, uh, fish waste. Using the nutrients from the fish waste to in the hydroponics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but biochar is used in a filtration step in the process. So, yeah, it can be neatly integrated. And, and its properties, it's very good at, at, at holding on to things. So we're using biochar in uh, stormwater systems where the biochar incorporated with compost and soil in a, uh, think of a vegetated ditch along the roadside. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the challenges we have in the Northwest is that uh, copper from brake linings, as brake linings wear down, they go into the stormwater. And then that stormwater gets that copper, floats on down, gets into an estuary. And a few years ago, a friend at Washington State University found that copper in the, in the levels of nine parts per billion will kill salmon fry. Oh, no. So to protect our salmon, by using adding biochar to the filtration process, it captures that copper and locks it up permanently. Wow. So it will capture, it's also good for capturing zinc. Uh, zinc off of old galvanized roofs, for example, mm-hmm. uh, is a problem. So that the biochar can be used as part of the the filter and growing media in a filtration system. The city of Minneapolis has been used been using biochar to remediate E. coli bacteria. So what the biochar does is it holds on to the bacteria long enough for other organisms to consume it. They have a problem with E. coli from the songbirds that wind up. Uh, pooping on the roof, and then it, that winds up floating down into the stormwater system. And so they wind up with a bacteria count, an E. coli count, that exceeds their permit limits at the outfall of the uh, ponds where they collect the stormwater. And so they put in filters containing biochar, and, and the biochar will substantially reduce the E. coli well below their permit limits. So another, another use of uh, using biochar to reduce Organic pollutants in water as the city of Los Angeles is testing biochar for reducing the organic components in water that they want to reinject into their groundwater system, the so-called recharging system. And they see a lot of potential taking the organics from the outflow of a wetland where they have accumulated water and they want to filter it before they pump it back in the ground. So that's another use of use of biochar. Plus, there are all kinds of non-soil, non-filter, non-agricultural uses for biochar. There's a book that's recently been published called Burn that tells the story of a lot of uses of biochar, like use in building products and and that sort of thing. Wow. So we haven't seen it. uh, We see see activated carbon being used in food products. You can get some black ice cream in places like New York. But uh, it's also being used uh, in places like Australia and in Europe. Biochar is being used uh, in feed, in ruminant animal feed, because it actually helps the rumen. It behaves very much like straw does in a rumen uh, in terms of improving the, uh, the bacterial community within the rumen. What's a rumen? A cow's stomach. Okay. Oh, so cows are ruminants, and and uh, cows and horses and so on. Are pigs? And, and, and nope, pigs have a little different oh. gastronomic. But actually, biochar at one or two percent in pig feed uh, uh, actually improves pigs. It improves also improves uh, both the odor in with chickens, for example. You get a tremendous ammonia smell from chickens because they have a very poor 
inefficient metabolism. They're only about 42% efficient in converting nutrients like uh, phosphorus and so on uh, in their body. So they excrete all this stuff and, and nitrogen. So it winds up, uh, nitrogen winds up forming ammonia. So if you go into some of the concentrated feed operations, you, you just get smoked out with ammonia. The ammonia smell is really horrible. So what's happened is some of these operations are beginning to add biochar to the litter, and that substantially reduces the ammonia smell and improves the health of the birds. And then the birds ingest some of that, and it actually improves their um, uptake. Uh, Right. Their own uptake and their, well, their digestion probably reduces the amount of feed that they eat, but improves their health. And one of the challenges we have is that in, in the United States, it's illegal to feed biochar to or charcoal to animals. Why? And that came about, came about because a, uh, a feeder back in 2010 was using charcoal to mask a, an aflatoxin in some corn that they were selling for feed. And so the Food and Drug Administration said no more charcoal. But you can you can use it for feed in Canada and in the rest of the world, but not in the United States. So we're doing studies to hopefully lead to reinstating biochar for use in feed in the United States because it would help the enteric methane, the methane from the ruminants from the cows that uh, people complain about causing greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah. Yeah, so biochar can be used in a lot of different ways. So many different ways. I had no idea. I thought it was really just the soil, but then you mentioned, you know, the fish filters that I kind of forgot about that I used to use. And then do you think it really works in toothpaste? That's kind of a popular thing now, too. It's in everything, isn't it, it seems? Well, it's charcoal-activated carbon. That's what's being used. It's actually activated carbon from coconut shells that are imported from Asia. That's where most of our organic activated carbon comes from is Malaysia and Aceh, Indonesia, for example. Yeah, it's in toothpaste, it's simply an abrasive component. Some people worry about, you know, well, what's the impact of the carbon on your enamel? But yeah, Crest actually produces a toothpaste with activated carbon in it. It's got black stripes. Charcoal was used at one time as a tooth powder. It's used in soaps. You can buy charcoal-covered peanuts in China. Wow. So, yeah, it's been used for a lot of things. And, of course, it's it's part of any kind of a, uh, a rescue pack for uh, for poisoning. Right. Yes. I knew about that, too. Um, is that because it absorbs the poison and makes you throw up or something? No, it, it absorbs the poison is the main thing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the other thing I found is that adding biochar to an anaerobic digester, uh, where you're digesting food waste, for example, actually absorbs the toxins and improves, uh, thereby increases the amount of gas that can be made. The gas, the methanogens, the bacteria that convert the, uh, the carbon in the, in the waste to carbon monoxide or, or to methane are inhibited in the amount of methane they can produce by certain acids and toxins that accumulate in the digester. And they found that just like in the rumen, just like in a cow, you add a little biochar, and it actually reduces the toxins and improves the health of the digester and, and the gas production. I think also that our wrestling team used to use it in high school, and that was for ringworm. Charcoal, oh, really? Charcoal huh. soap. Yeah, I remember it being black. 
So many uses. That's very cool. So <laughs> if if any of our listeners are interested in talking to their local communities or trying to do this in their backyard, you mentioned a number of websites that they can check out so they can be doing this themselves and add it you know, with compost and make really good soil. Are there any references or recommendations for people who would like to get one of these facilities in their communities? Well, it's pretty easy these days just simply to Google biochar and there are lots of stories. There are many, many discussion, biochar discussion groups and social media, primarily on Facebook, and the International Biochar Initiative. We have a website, the U.S. Biochar Initiative. We also have a website. We have conferences uh, every either one or two years. The next conference is coming up in the end of June in Fort Collins, Colorado, called Biochar and Bioenergy 2019. Cool. And... Uh, it's pretty easy to find information about biochar uh, on the internet. So uh, mm-hmm. use use Google and and then come to the the International Biochar Initiative and the U.S. Biochar Initiative are volunteer organizations. Uh, there are, have been various Canadian organizations. There will be a biochar conference in Quebec in 2021, and uh, you've got quite a quite a group of enthusiastic biochar producers, biochar folks, both in eastern and western Canada, and also right in the middle in the, in the plains of uh, Saskatchewan. Good. Well, Tom, this has been just amazing, and I've learned so much. I really had no idea that, that we could use it for so many things. And uh, the Amazon part just fascinates me that humans were doing such good things with their trash, and now we're not. But Sometimes we can look <laughs> to the past, right, to to get these answers. So thank you. Well, it turns out that actually the uh, uh, there were similar activities going on, and uh, they're discovering in eastern Mesoamerica and the Mayan civilization as the Mayans adapted to global warming and drought situations in their own several thousand years of existence. So cool. Yeah, hopefully we can learn from these things and make smarter use of our. Uh, of our waste materials and and get more into circular economies. So, yes. Uh, well, I appreciate the opportunity to to speak with you and and hope that your listeners will follow up and Google biochar and figure out how to work biochar into their own lives. Yeah, it sounds really amazing. Um, so thank you, and uh, I I'm happy that you're in Oregon because I love it out there. Oh, it is a lot of fun, and Southern Oregon's another place where actually biochar is being used to remediate uh, an old nickel mine and. In Southern Oregon. Oh, good. In the rogue, in the rogue area. Our <laughs> listeners are from America, and I, I lived on, on the West Coast for 13 years, and Whistler and Victoria and all those wonderful places. But uh, now I'm back near Toronto because this is where a lot of things happen, and this is this is actually a better place to save the environment and get people thinking about making more sustainable choices. Because here I see garbage everywhere. I go. And in Victoria, I would never see someone throw a bottle on the ground or I would never see cigarette butts all over the place. You know, I mean, part of that's forest fires. You you really can't throw cigarette butts out. But in, in Toronto, for example, you can walk down the street and you can count like a hundred cigarette butts sometimes. So there's a lot of work to do here. Absolutely. Well, you, see you have a world of opportunity. Exactly. That's how I see it. Yeah. <laughs> Although I do miss the West Coast. <laughs> but yeah. Thank you so much. This is really wonderful. And thank you for explaining everything to me because I don't really know a whole lot of how this works. So <laughs> I appreciate that. Great. Well, take care. Have a good day. Thank you. You too. Take care. Bye. Thanks. Bye. 
That was Tom Miles speaking with us today from Portland, Oregon, all about biochar. If you like our show and want to help save the world from all this trash we're consuming, please consider donating to the Zero Waste Countdown. You can become a patron on Podbean, you can find me on Patreon, or you can donate right on the website, zerowastecountdown.com. And if you're interested in seeing a photo of our guests, you can check us out on Instagram. That's zero underscore waste underscore countdown. And if you want to email me, it's laura at zerowastecountdown.com. Thank you for listening, everybody. Thanks to all our listeners in America, Canada, Australia, Germany, the UK, and wherever else you may be tuning in from. Together, we're going to change the world. Change starts now. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. (laughs) 